Would you now stand in honor of God's Word for the reading of God's Word? Our passage is John chapter 18. You should be able to find that in a nearby pew Bible if you didn't bring a Bible of your own. Uh, Brown pew Bibles are there. And we, we like for everybody to be able to see the passage as it's being preached. We're able to see God's Word. Um, so we'd ask for you. I'm, I didn't look at the page number. Can somebody tell me the page number? In the, what is it? 1013 in the Pew Bibles. Page 1013 in the Pew Bibles. John chapter 18, beginning at verse 28. We're going to begin midway through the chapter. John 18, beginning at verse 28. This is God's word. Then the Jews led Jesus from Caiaphas to the palace of the Roman governor. By now it was early in the morning. And to avoid ceremonial uncleanness, the Jews did not enter the palace. They wanted to be able to eat the Passover. So Pilate came out to them and asked, What charges are you bringing against this man? If he were not a criminal, they replied, we would not have handed him over to you. Pilate said, Take him yourselves and judge him by your own law. But we have no right to execute anyone, the Jews objected. This happened so that the words Jesus had spoken indicated the kind of death he was going to die would be fulfilled. Pilate then went back inside the palace, summoned Jesus, and asked him, Are you the king of the Jews? Is that your own idea, Jesus asked, or did others talk to you about me? Am I a Jew, Pilate replied. It was your people and your priests who handed you over to me. What is it you have done? Jesus said, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would fight to prevent my arrest by the Jews. But now my kingdom is from another place. You are a king then, said Pilate. Jesus answered, you are right in saying I am a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. What is truth? Pilate asked. With this he went out again to the Jews and said, I find no basis for a charge against him. But it is your custom for me to release to you one prisoner at the time of the Passover. Do you want me to release the king of the Jews? They shouted back, No, not him. Give us Barabbas. Now Barabbas had taken part in a rebellion. Then Pilate took Jesus and had him flogged. The soldiers twisted together a crown of thorns and put it on his head. They clothed him in a purple robe and went up to him again and again saying, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him in the face. Once more Pilate came out and said to the Jews, Look, I'm bringing, out, I'm bringing him out to you to let you know that I find no basis for a charge against him. When Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe, Pilate said to them, Here is the man. As soon as the chief priests and their officials saw him, they shouted, Crucify! Crucify! But Pilate answered, You take him and crucify him. As for me, I find no basis for a charge against him. The Jews insisted, We have a law, and according to that law he must die because he claimed to be the Son of God. When Pilate heard this, he was even more afraid, and he went back inside the palace. Where do you come from? he asked Jesus. But Jesus gave him no answer. Do you refuse to speak to me, Pilate said? Do you realize I have power either to free you or to crucify you? Jesus answered, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. Therefore, the one who handed you over 
is guilty of a greater sin. The one who handed me over is guilty of a greater sin. From then on, Pilate tried to set Jesus free, but the Jews kept shouting, If you let this man go, you are no friend of Caesar. Anyone who claims to be a king opposes Caesar. When Pilate heard this, he brought Jesus out and sat down on the judge's seat at a place known as the Stone Pavement, which in Aramaic is Gabbatha. It was the day of preparation of Passover week, about the sixth hour. Here is your king, Pilate said to the Jews, but they shouted, Take him away, take him away, crucify him. Shall I crucify your king, Pilate asked? We have no king but Caesar, the chief priests answered. Finally, Pilate handed him over to them to be crucified. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you for allowing for a longer reading. I wanted us to be able to see the whole scene there as we jump in and begin to talk together. Would you pray with me once more as we come to God's word? Let's pray together. Father, we come before you. We've spoken to you in prayer. We've worshiped you in song. We've brought you our gifts. We've heard your words read, and now we ask that you would use your word um, through the power of your spirit to change us, to pierce our hearts, to open our eyes, to let us see truth, the truth about who we are, the truth about our need, the truth about the kingdom of Jesus that will one day overcome all kingdoms of the world. Let that be our hope today. Lift up our eyes, lift up our hearts. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Kids, I got a quick question for us this morning. Do you remember what happened this past week? Big event in our country. Yes. The election. That's right. And we talked about that last Sunday. And uh, the, the title of last week's sermon was Election Infection. Okay, so we're talking about this craziness of election series. Uh, and uh, season, election season, and uh, now we're on the other side of that, and uh, I tell you what happened is not necessarily what I expected to happen, not many people expected that to happen, and uh, it changed a little bit about how, actually what I was going to preach on this Sunday, and uh, I wanted to take another week on this to talk about mainly how are we to respond uh, as followers of Jesus, as a church, uh, to what's taking place in our country, to our hopes uh, for our country. And uh, I tell you, you know, after the, um, after the election, I think what we saw is that some people were terribly distraught and afraid and even are right now. Uh, on the other side, people are ecstatic. People are like, you know, on cloud nine. And what I really want to talk about today is how should we be as followers of Jesus? What should be our posture? How should we engage politics in the world? And my, my fear is that as followers of Jesus, we're either going to be too afraid in light of what happened, or we're going to be too ecstatic and too hopeful and too, too much of the mindset of we won. That's probably the greater danger in this part of the country, in the Bible Belt. The danger is that we're going to think, yes, we won. God showed up, and now everything's going to be okay so we can go back to business as usual as the church. I think that would be a grave mistake. So I want to talk about how are we as followers of Jesus to engage 
politics in our culture. So again, as I said last week, uh, this is a hot topic. If I make somebody mad, I would only ask, come and talk to me. I'm a reasonable guy, okay? We can talk it out together. Uh, And last week, I did not tell you who to vote for. I would not tell you who you should have voted for this week, because I don't know. I still don't know. Um, Let me start with a story. Um, A couple months ago, uh, there were two leaders uh, in churches that I know well, churches in the area, uh, churches in our denomination. I know both of these men. They're good men. And one of the men is an African-American brother. He's a lay leader in the church. The other one is a a white brother. He's a leader in his church, different churches. The African-American brother had been charged by our presbytery to create a committee on racial reconciliation, really addressing the issues of racism in our culture. And so he went to meet with the white brother, and they're going to sit down, they're going to talk about how to put this thing together. And as they sat down to talk, the first thing that the white brother asked the black brother was, my first question is, before we start working together, is are you pro-life? Are you pro-life? And the black brother was a little taken back because he realized that the white brother had assumed that because the other was black, that he knew where he lied politically, that he was probably a supporter of Obama, that he probably, uh, therefore, was not pro-life. Because you see, in his mind, that's how things fall, right? You either vote this way or you vote that way. And if you vote this way, then it means you believe in all of this. And if you vote this way over here, it means you vote for all of this. And because he was black, obviously, he's going to vote for Obama. He's not really thinking about all of these things. He's not thinking these things out. And the response of the black brother, I thought, was tremendous. We responded to him and he said, of course I'm pro-life. But for me, there's more than one pro-life issue. Yes, I think to to stand against abortion is is huge to be pro-life in that aspect. But I'm trying to say, how do I also be pro-life in the way that we deal with the poor? How are we pro-life in the way that we deal with the immigrant and the alien, which the scriptures talk more about than many, many other things, the poor and the alien and the immigrant? You would be shocked at how much the scripture talks about how we're to be concerned about their plight. So he said, I I have a lot of pro-life issues that I'm trying to wrestle with here. It's a far more complicated issue than just one. And it was a helpful conversation for the other because he began to think of things in a way that he had not thought of before. Now, I know many of you, even as I say that right now, you're saying, but they're not. That side over there is not for the poor. And they think that the way that we ought to help the poor is through government, and that's bad. Right? I'm not making an argument, you see, for which party has the best ideas of how to address the issues in our culture. I'm trying to make the argument that there's more than one Christian value and that no party, no earthly political party, has the corner on those values. Now, here's the problem. As we, as the church, especially in America, engage politics in a democracy, the problem is that we very easily are prone to identify ourselves with a particular political party, a particular movement, a particular leader. We're very prone to want to look to one 
movement, one platform and say, that's the Christian platform. That's who I am. And we identify ourselves with that particular movement. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't vote or that you shouldn't support one particular candidate or one particular party. That's a good thing. What I'm talking about is identifying yourself with it, is looking to it. And we all do this very easily. We look to it and we say, this is who I am. I'm one of these. I stand with these. We assign our identity to it. And whenever we do that, we are aligning our identity and our allegiance with something other than Jesus. In the Bible, that's called idolatry. Anytime that we put our hopes and our identity and, and, uh, and our allegiance in anything other than the living God, that's idolatry. And it will lead to fear, and it will lead to all kinds of the, the things that we have seen in our country and the church. How we have lost our voice because we have over-identified with a particular earthly platform. So here's what we'll see, what I want us to see in our passage today. I want us to, we're going to see the politics of Jesus. I really think you see in the passage the politics of Jesus. And I think what it calls us to is a deep alignment with Jesus and his kingdom. And whenever that is our highest allegiance, it allows us to not be controlled by fear, to not be afraid of the things that are happening in our culture, but to really be able to engage culture with love and as servants rather than as masters. When we're a part of an earthly movement, we want to be masters, we want to control, we want to get the right policies, we want to enforce through power. That's not our calling. He's building his kingdom. Our part is to be loyal to him and his kingdom, and he will bring that about through us as we love and as we serve. That's what we'll see in our passage. So let's jump in together. This is a really the climax of John's gospel and really of all the gospels as you come to this moment of the crucifixion. And we're honing in on the trial of Jesus. First thing I want to see, I want us to see is the crowd, the partisanship of the crowd. And, and John very much wants you to see the irony of this. Now this crowd that's here, it looks very much like a, a political rally, right? I mean, we've seen lots of those over the past year and a half. You know, the big rallies on TV and, and the crowd is shouting and they're, they're, sometimes they're shouting down with the other side, down with the other candidate. We see all of that. It's the same picture that we see here. They're shouting, crucify, crucify. Here's the irony. This is the same crowd that about a week earlier was hailing and praising Jesus as the coming king laying their coats down. He's riding into Jerusalem on a donkey, and they're celebrating, and they're cheering, and now the crowd is now against him and wants his crucifixion. What's taken place? They had an agenda. They had a certain idea about what needs to happen and what, who Jesus ought to be, and whenever they began to realize that's not what he was going to do, he was not going to come over and take power, he's not going to kick the Romans out, he was not going to bring our agenda. He was not going to establish Jerusalem like we had hoped that he would. They turned on him because he did not fit their agenda. Now, they're, they're cheering. They're passionate. They're convinced that they're right. And I don't know if you noticed this, but um, in verse 38 uh, or verse 
Verse 39, whenever it says it was the custom to, uh, the custom of the government to release uh, one of the prisoners to them at the time of the Passover. So there's this, he's got two prisoners here. He's got Jesus and Barabbas. Barabbas was a, he was a murderer. He was a rebellion leader. Uh, everybody knows he's a very bad guy. And then you got Jesus, one whom they are convinced is evil and is, in a, is against God in an in a incredible picture of irony. Uh, Pilate says to them, who do you want me to release to you? And they say, give us Barabbas. Crucify him. And I think it's a real tremendous hallmark picture of what partisanship looks like. You see, whenever you're a partisan, what does it mean to be a partisan? To be a partisan means you align yourself, you align your identity with a particular party, a particular tribe, a particular cause. You set your identity in it. I'm all in here. And you know, whenever, you know what happens whenever you do that? You begin to minimize your own weaknesses. You become blind to your own weaknesses or the weakness of the leader of your particular party. And you exaggerate the weakness, the evil, the badness of the opponent. You see it all over the place in this crowd. They're looking at Jesus and they're like, he is evil. They don't have anything to really accuse him of. But he is evil. He is bad. He's an enemy of the state. And they look at Barabbas and they say, oh, he's not that bad. You know, he was just passionate about his cause. You see how that easily takes place? Did you see that taking place throughout our nation over the past year? How you have the two sides, and whenever you're in one of those camps, you have this natural tendency to minimize the weakness of your own leader. And the other side, oh, they're a demon. They're awful. They're horrible. Can you see them? Can you see how bad they are? Whenever we become partisans, that's what begins to happen. We begin to demonize the opponent and we become blinded to our own weaknesses, to the places that we need to look at ourselves and we need to see, hey, I'm not where I need to be on this. This this leader is not going to save everybody. But when we become overly identified, when we align ourselves with a party, we're essentially saying, this cause equals Jesus. This cause equals the church. And I want to say to you, that whole thing is bad. We shouldn't do that as a church. We should be separate from any particular cause so that we can speak prophetically to both sides and call them out according to the truth of Scripture. So I want to move on now. We see the partisan of the crowd, really a tremendous picture of ourselves. But I also want to hone in on this exchange between Pilate and Jesus which is really a tremendous picture of the clash of the politics of this world and the politics of Jesus. Now, politics is really how you get something done, right? It's, it's how do you maneuver things? How do you enact your vision of what you think needs to happen? And you see that clashing coming together. And now Pilate was a Roman governor. He was a politician, incredibly skilled politician. He had been placed as the Roman governor by Caesar. Now, he was a man who had a career. He knew how things worked. He knew how to, how to win power. He knew how to appease a crowd. He knew how to, to build a consensus. He knew how to, uh, to appease in the right ways that you need to, to make concessions, to make compromises. He was a tremendous politician. And we see here, as the first thing he asked Jesus is, he says, are you a king? You see, 
Pilate's trying to figure out, he's trying to assess the situation here. Basically, Pilate just wants to calm everything down, right? He doesn't want a big rebellion happening on his watch. And so he's kind of playing both sides. You know, he's, he doesn't want to be someone who condemns someone who's innocent. But at the same time, he doesn't want to stir up the crowd. He doesn't need a rebellion on his hands. So he's trying to figure out wherever, uh, where Jesus is and what exactly has happened. And he says, are you a king? Now, Pilate knew what a king was. The ancient world knew what kings were a lot more than we do. You see, a king is someone who rules. They rule according to their own whims. They're a dictator. They have absolute power. And if you're a king that doesn't have power, it means you're not a king anymore. And so whenever Pilate looks at Jesus and says, you're a king, he knows there's no way he's a king. He's poor. All of his followers have deserted him. He doesn't have the right pedigree. He's not from the right hometown. This isn't a king. He's just trying to figure out what Jesus thinks about himself. Are you a king? And now anytime you ask Jesus a question, you're going to get a question back. And before you know it, you're going to be trying to defend yourself, right? Jesus had a powerful way of responding in a way that actually made you the one that was having to defend yourself. So we see this Pilate who has power. He knows how to enforce an agenda. He, he's trying to weigh all of these things. And at one moment, Jesus is not answering him in chapter 19. And he says to him, you're not going to answer me? Don't you realize I have the power over you? I have the power to crucify you or set you free? I'm the one who's in charge here. He knows how politics work. And did you see Jesus' response? we begin to see the politics of Jesus that are completely different from the view of this world. Jesus responds to him, verse 11, you would have no power over me if it were not given to you from above. That's a totally different way of looking at the world and looking at circumstances and looking at power. In the eyes of Pilate, he had power. If you have the crowd, you have power. If you have position, you have power. If you can enact and enforce your policies, you have power. And Jesus looks at him and he says, you're mistaken. Everything you have has been handed to you from above. He's put you there to accomplish his purposes. And when he's done, you will be removed. Jesus has a completely different outlook on the politics and the power of this world. In verse 36, Jesus' response to Pilate, I think, is the real key to understanding the politics of Jesus. You know, Jesus has just responded, and uh, um, Pilate comes back to him, says, what have you done? In verse 36, Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world. If it were, my servants would have been fighting for me. My kingdom is not of this world. Now, Jesus is not saying my kingdom is something that's just spiritual. My kingdom is something that is otherworldly and doesn't have anything to do with the everyday realities of this world. That's not what Jesus is saying. We often think that. Jesus has just come to deal with our personal spiritual life, just with our interior life. He's not wanting to affect anything in our everyday life, our work, our politics, 
any of those kind of things. No, no, he doesn't get entangled in that. He's just here to save your heart and then your life and your body and all of that stuff, that's to, that belongs to the earth. It's something totally different. That's not what Jesus is saying. He's talking about the origin of his kingdom, not the destination of his kingdom. He's saying, my kingdom is not created here on the earth. It, it doesn't have its origin in any human political movement or any human cause or any human leader. It doesn't work the way that the things in this world work. It doesn't come in the way that the things in this world come through power and might and coercion. That's not my, how my kingdom comes. That's not, it cannot be located in any earthly power or movement. It's from another place. But it's coming here. After all, that's exactly what Jesus taught his disciples to pray. Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. The whole program of Jesus' mission is that God's heavenly kingdom would come down into the earth through the life of his people. Very easy to misunderstand that. So Jesus says, my kingdom is not from this world. If it were, then it would be advancing just the way that the kingdoms of this world advance. My followers would fight for me. It would be dependent upon power. It would be dependent upon wisdom or uh, the right kind of policies or any of this stuff. But my kingdoms is not from this world. That's not how it comes. It cannot be located in any earthly kingdom. we got to see this. This is tremendously applicable for us as we engage culture. God's kingdom cannot be found in any earthly political movement, any earthly leader. You cannot look to it and say, this equals the kingdom of God because no human movement can fully capture who he is and what his kingdom has come to do. It's absolutely critical to see. Now, Jesus was hard to pin down on his particular views. I mean, if you were to go through and you would say, let me try to figure out which side Jesus is on, you're going to have a really hard time. But people like to do that a lot. We like to say, oh, Jesus is on my side and Jesus is on this side. Well, really, Jesus is on Jesus' side. And the question for us is, am I on Jesus' side? You know, Jesus was not red or blue. Jesus was not conservative or liberal. He was both, far more than anybody else would be. You know, at times, as you see Jesus, he, he's far more far right and conservative than we would ever even dare to be, right? The ways in which he spoke about marriage, the ways in which he spoke about divorce, the ways in which he spoke about the law, the ways in which he said your righteousness must not just be in your actions but must go all the way down to your heart that your faithfulness to your spouse and marriage should be so high that you do not even commit, uh, that you do not even lust after another person because that is committing adultery. He goes way beyond what any far-right person would go in our world. Incredibly conservative at certain places. But yet in other times, more far left than we ever would want him to be. In the ways that he spent his life for the poor, in the ways that in which he was drawn after the broken and the alien and the stranger, uh, the ways in which, uh, well, for instance, whenever he meets the rich young ruler, 
you know, he's kind of a Republican, right? You know, he's got money, he's religious, he's got all of his ducks in a row, he's done everything right, and he comes up to Jesus. Uh, what must I do to go to heaven? Knowing already that he's already checked all the boxes. And you know what Jesus tells him? You lack one thing. Go sell everything you got and give it away to the poor, and then your reward will be great in heaven. That's far left. The point is, you cannot put Jesus in a box. And therefore, you must not be able to put us in a box. We've got to be able to speak truth to both sides. Because we belong to a kingdom that is not of this world. And when we become convinced by the powers in the world that we are a part of this earthly movement, they're winning. We, we are being played on by the forces of Satan whenever he wants to align us with something earthly. And we lose our voice in this culture. One writer that I like to follow a lot, his name's Scott Sauls. He's a pastor in a church in Nashville. And he, uh, for a season, was a pastor in New York with Tim Keller at Redeemer. New York's a very different place, as you know. And he was doing a, um, a public speech. He was um, giving a lecture, a public lecture. And um, after it, he got all of these emails. And all, of his, and all the emails were really hot. And half of the emails were like, you are the most bigoted right-wing person I've ever seen in my life. And the other half of the emails were like, you are the most bleeding heart liberal I've ever seen in my life. And he's like, what do you do with this? I said, I mean, both groups heard the same thing. How do you get this? And then he goes to, to Dr. Keller and he says, what do I make of this? And I love Tim Keller's response to him. He said, well, you, you should always seek to learn from criticism. He said, but I think you need to be encouraged. I'm like, encouraged? He said, yeah. If people can't pin you into a particular box, the chances are you're preaching Jesus faithfully. Couldn't put him in a box. You can't put us in a box. Do not hear, we should not vote. Do not hear, we should not engage politics and engage our world and speak out, we should, but we should do so without fully identifying ourselves with any earthly movement so that we can speak truth in both directions. I love Pilate's response as Jesus continues to go down. Verse 37, he says, so you are a king then. Thinks he's pinned Jesus down. Look at what Jesus says, second part of verse 37. You are right in saying I'm a king. In fact, for this reason I was born, and for this I came into the world, to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. Not maybe necessarily where we thought he would go at that point in the argument. Now, did you see Pilate's response right after that? What is truth? Kind of a way of Pilate distancing himself because what Jesus has just said puts him on the hook. You see, Jesus is essentially saying, my kingdom is a kingdom of truth. A few chapters before, Jesus had said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. You know, Jesus is saying, I 
am truth. I am the ultimate truth. Truth is only found in me and in reference to me. Tremendous statement. From the perspective of the Bible, from the perspective of Jesus, one of the greatest problems of the world is that the world is living in rejection of the truth, in, in, in deception, in rejecting who God is and who Jesus is. See, for Pilate, in the ways of the world, truth is useful. Truth is something that can be massaged and packaged and it can be uh, given in half-truths. It can be spun. And politically speaking, even in our country today, all truth that you're getting is spun. That is, it's, it's couched, it's uh, packaged, it's twisted in a certain way, ever so subtly, to get you to believe a certain thing. And let me just warn you, if, if people are using truth to entertain you, if, if the person delivering your news looks like a supermodel, we should be a little skeptical of that, if you know what I'm saying. Truth is useful in the power of the world. For Pilate, truth comes at the end of a sword. Truth comes at the end of a barrel. Truth is defined by the person who wins, the person holding the power. And Jesus has come to say, I am the truth. I am bringing the truth about who I am. My kingdom is about truth, and I'm going to reveal it. We, as followers of Jesus, must be about the truth. Not just what supports our agenda. Even if we think that agenda, even if we think that end, that vision for our country is a good one, we can't play with the truth. We ought to sincerely care about what is true. And it is hard work to try to get to the truth. Not only in the world, but in my own life. So let's ask Pilate's question. We'll close here. What is truth? That's a great question. What is truth? And here's what's true. Jesus is on his throne. That's true. No matter who's president, no matter who controls Congress, no matter who your boss is, no matter what circumstances you're facing in your life, Jesus is sitting on his throne. As the psalmist says over and over and over, the Lord reigns. That is a fact, and that is truth. And his kingdom is coming into this world. And one day his kingdom will fill the earth, as Isaiah says, as the waters cover the seas. One day he will fill the earth with his kingdom. Everything that is broken will be made right. Everything that pains you in your life, every piece of suffering that you walk through in your life will one day be put to rights by King Jesus. That is what is true. His kingdom will reign over all. And there's really only ultimately two kingdoms. There is the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And the main question, now this is essential truth for all of us, the main question is, what kingdom are you in? Who is your king? Because one day he will come to fill the earth with his kingdom and everyone who is not in his kingdom, everyone who is not uh, surrendered to him as their king, will be banished, will be judged, will be cast into hell. And everyone that is in his kingdom will reign with him forever and ever and ever. So the truth is, 
What kingdom are you in? Who is your king? How do we enter the kingdom of God? By embracing Jesus as king. Put him on the throne of your heart and you come into his kingdom. But there's something else that's true and is very, very, very good news for people like us. Jesus' kingdom does not come through a sword, through power. It does not come through public policy, though it can be a piece of that. It does not come through power or coercion. His kingdom comes through a cross. That is good news for people like me and people like you. That's the incredible irony of this passage. They're right in front of Pilate's face, right at the very heart of what's taking place in this passage. Did you see what happened? You know, he, he's saying, I am a king. My kingdom is coming. Pilate's like, this guy's deluded. But look at what happens in the scene. A guilty man is released because an innocent man dies. Right there. Isn't that beautiful? God has so carefully orchestrated the details of this moment that it is itself a picture of the gospel. An innocent man dies. Jesus is utterly innocent, never sinned in his life, but yet willingly he dies so that a guilty man, Barabbas, may go free. It's the gospel right there. This whole scene is leading up to the moment of his crucifixion that is the very heart of the coming of his kingdom and is right before Pilate's eyes. He's thinking that his decisions in the moment, the crowd is thinking that their decisions are advancing their cause, and what they don't realize is their decisions are being used by God to accomplish the great reversal of the cross. Right before their eyes, they cannot see the truth. What is the truth? The cross. That's how his kingdom comes. The king lays down his life for the guilty that they may become his people. That is the truth of the gospel, and everyone who sees it and embraces it is saved. Beautiful. The cross is at the very heart of the coming of his kingdom. In no other kingdom in this world does a king die for his people. That is our kingdom. And because of that, the cross is to shape everything about our calling is to shape everything about our lives as followers of Jesus. Our calling is to bear witness, to testify, like Jesus, to the truth, to the truth of the cross. That's how his kingdom comes, as we bear witness to the truth of the cross. How does that happen? It happens as we, like him, live self-sacrificing, loving lives toward others. It comes as we lay down our lives for others. It comes as we love our enemies. It comes as we love our spouses. It comes as we serve our neighbor. It comes as we care for the poor. It comes as we live lives of generosity, pouring out what God has entrusted to us for the good of others rather than hoarding it to ourselves. You see, each one of those things that we're called to in our life is a picture of the cross. It is laying down your rights so that another may benefit. Laying down your preferences so that another may live. It's dying to yourself in order that another may experience love. That is all a picture of the cross. So you want to change the world? Love your enemies. 
You want to change our culture? Submit to your boss and be the best employee you can possibly be. You want to change the world? Forgive somebody that doesn't deserve forgiveness and respond in love and give your life away and serve somebody who can't do anything for themselves. That is our calling. And as we do that, that's how his kingdom comes, through the power of the cross. Close with this quote. We've, we've, I've mentioned this quote before. I think it's just so fantastic. It's uh, N.T. Wright says this. He says, God's mission is not to snatch us out of the earth up to heaven, which is what we often think. But God's mission is to colonize the earth with the life of heaven. It's a beautiful quote. God's mission is not to snatch us away from the earth up to heaven, but rather to colonize the earth with the life of heaven. What does it mean to colonize? It means you take the values and you take the life of your country and you go to another place, another nation, another kingdom, and you colonize it. You bring it to bear. You live it out right where you are. That's how you colonize something. And that is exactly our mission. We're colonizers. We are to bring the life of heaven right down into the everyday realities of where you live and where you work and where you play. What is the life of heaven? It looks like love with a cross in it. That's the life of heaven. Let me 